Uh, to uh, look at a, the book of Ecclesiastes today in another meaningless sermon. Um, let, let me start with uh, this understanding. Les and I live in a neighborhood that is populated with many, many young families. As a matter of fact, I think we're probably the youngest family in the neighborhood. I mean, we're the oldest family in the neighborhood. <laughs> Everybody's younger. We're the oldest couple. Because there are all kinds of... I mean. There are kids in the street. It's, we, we live in this where there's not a lot of bad tra- you know, traffic flying by. It's ongoing. And uh, to the point when, we, when Halloween comes along, it's quite an event at our house. Um, here's what happened. A few years ago, we had so many kids come to the house, we actually ran out of candy. And Leslie raided the pantry, and she was giving out packets of Jello to children. As they were coming, you couldn't say, well, good, you know, trick or treat, nothing at all. So she literally, she gave away all the packets of Jello. The kid that got the can of, of um, peas was not very impressed with that. <laughs> we gave, one kid got macaroni cheese and he goes, what's this? Just take it home, your mom will get it. So we actually, in order to kind of stall that ever happening again, we counted how many kids came the next year. We had over 200 children show up. So it's a big deal. Halloween is a big deal in our neighborhood, but that's not the case in all neighborhoods. For example, there's a couple up in the western suburbs of Chicago where um, nothing happened. Cold, stormy night. They were kind of at the end of a street where nobody came. And so after about an hour of inactivity, the doorbell rings and they're quite thrilled. There's a young guy there about this tall, dressed as a clown. And they open the door, trick or treat, they invite him in, and they've got this bowl full of candy. And this kid, fast, fast thinker, they say, which one would you like? And he goes, just dump the whole bowl and no one else is coming tonight. (laughs) Fast, fast thinker. I like that. I'm wondering if you are fast on your feet. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm not. I was was at an event this past week on Wednesday that... um, proved to me that sometimes I don't do so well at impromptu stuff. Here's what happened. The uh, Greater Decatur Chamber of Commerce graciously invited me to um, pray a prayer at the seventh annual community prayer breakfast. And um, I went in there with, in many ways, with much of, I had a piece of paper with some script of what I was going to say, but my intent was to use that as a basis and then sort of read the room. Go and talk to people before the breakfast and see what else was going on in people's lives and then use the script as a place to start and then have, if you will, that prayer and then, if you will, an extemporaneous ad-lib type of prayer that would respond to what everybody was saying, the conversation in the room. It was a good plan, but my delivery didn't move along so well because during the ad-lib portion of my prayer, I repeated a statistic that someone had brought to me in conversation about the number of people in our city or in our community who live below the poverty level. And that's something that preachers shouldn't do. You should never repeat a statistic unless you've checked it out. And so I'm walking off the stage down to where we've been sitting, those of us who are leading this event, and I had this inner sense of, oh, maybe I shouldn't have repeated that. You know, the room was doing well, and but have you ever had that moment where you go, this could go badly? You've had that, right? Well, as it so happens, there was a lovely reporter from the Decatur Herald and Review there 
who wrote, Teresa wrote a lovely story on the event, and the one thing that she picked up was me saying, praying for the 37,000 people in our community who live below the poverty level. But my sense of foreboding, and you shouldn't have done that, sitting at the breakfast table proved to be true, because when I got back to the office, I looked up the U.S. Census information, and it is not 37,000 people. I'm off just a bit, 19,000 people. And so I have had this knot in my belly since Wednesday. See, I, I'm pretty certain that not everybody caught my error in the room, but now it's in print. What would you do if you're in my space? What would you do to make that right? I am... Um, I'm aware of this, that in the profession I'm in, as clergy, if you will, what I say and how I live has to be truthful at all times, or else it begins to erode. If I misspeak or state half-truths or non-truths, that erodes trust, doesn't it, in the people who are listening? So the question I'd like to put to you this morning is this. How would you have me correct this very public mistake that I've made. What wisdom could you bring to this situation? Not the poverty level, that's a different issue altogether, but to the wrong figure that I used. I need some wisdom. What would you say I should do? This morning we are looking at what the Bible, particularly in the book of Ecclesiastes, has to say about wisdom. And kind of sort of, if you will, to answer this question. What does it take to have wisdom? And what does it take to be wise? And I'm quite aware, as you would probably think about this, that wisdom is different than knowledge. You can know all sorts of stuff and not be wise. Um, and you can gain all sorts of knowledge and still be stupid. Does that make sense? Not live life. I, 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 there, there's a great story in this regard. Perhaps you're familiar with a movie called um, A Beautiful Mind and a book about, it's called A Beautiful Mind. It's a story about a great mathematician by the name of John Nash. And uh, John Nash won a Nobel Prize uh, for his work in mathematics. And he was a genius. And I say was because perhaps you're unaware that he, he and his wife died in a tragic car wreck just a couple of weeks ago in New Jersey. They were riding in a taxi that got slammed and they were both killed in the back of the cab. And when the movie came out, I don't know, 15 years or so ago, I, I watched the movie. I was so intrigued by it, I actually went and got the book and read the book. And I can say that I read the book and I saw the movie, but I have no idea one, he, why he won the Nobel Prize because it was, had something to do with games and theories. And I did fairly well with math all the way through into the, even to the college. I have a degree, an undergraduate degree in business administration with some accounting and some finance in my background. But... That's numbers. This guy did math. And I don't even understand the questions he was answering. What's fascinating, though, about Nash's life is that all that knowledge didn't help him because in his early 30s, perhaps you're aware, this is the focus of the book and the movie, he went insane, literally. And for three decades or so, he went in and out of mental institutions living a life of insanity, making very, very unwise 
bad decisions as a result of this insanity um, that impacted him. And, and it wasn't until he was in his 60s that he really came out of all of that and was able then to live in a better way. All the intelligence of a great mind couldn't help him when he needed some wisdom. And in many ways, that's what we have been discovering throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the author, had great intelligence. He had great wealth. He had everything at his disposal. He was, he was the king of Israel some 3,000 years ago when Israel was at the height of its glory. Yet he discovered that in his own strength and in his own approach to life, there were some limits as to how far he could go and his wisdom would only carry him so far. As a matter of fact, as he looked at his life, he uses a word within the book of Ecclesiastes, which is fascinating. It's a Hebrew word, hebel. And it's, that, it's got the, the sound at the beginning of the word, that, a hard H. And in many ways, it's a description of what the word means. It means that, is that everything is meaningless. It's dust. It's a vapor. It is a wisp, a hebel, a wisp of air. We've been translating it this way as our Bible, if you read an NIV, has been translating that word as meaningless. It's all meaningless. Even wisdom in and of itself can be meaningless, he says. And we want to know how do we be wise in the midst of that then? How do we make credible decisions that will be lived out in the ways in which we work tomorrow and the ways in which we play on Monday night and the fact, the decisions that we have for our families. How can we be wise at all that? So I want to give you two responses to that today from the book of Ecclesiastes, ways to be wise. And I'm going to start with number two. I'm going to start with the second way in which you should be wise or which we can develop wisdom within our lives that is going to be productive and not just meaningless. Namely, Solomon says, if you want to be wise, do this. And then secondly, when I'll come to this in just a minute, number one, and then number two, strike a balance in life. And so I want you to make note that where we're going for the next four or five minutes is how to describe how to live a life of balance given all of Solomon's observations about life. Because some of the things he says about life are humorous at times where you go, where did that come from? And I want to remind you, we've been saying all the way through this series as we concluded today, that after living a long life, he writes Ecclesiastes and he says, I've looked at all of life and it seems like just in and of itself it's meaningless and I have some observations. And if you just look at one observation, you can run into trouble in the book of Ecclesiastes. You have to wait till the very end to get the kicker. So we're gonna look at some of these observations about wisdom and we're headed towards where we're gonna see him say, find balance in all of this, okay? But to just show you how crazy his life was, look at a couple of passages with me, please. They're gonna be on the screen to start with. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10. He makes a pretty profound and pretty obvious observation. If the ax is dull and its edge is unsharpened, more strength is needed. Well, duh. It's pretty straight up, right? Duh. I mean, if you've got a dull ax, you're going to have to work harder. If you've got a screwdriver where half the flange is cut off, you know, broken off, you're going to have to work harder to get that, I mean, pretty straight up. If you're working with tools, the tools need to be in good shape. 
The verse before that, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 9, he says this, Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. 3,000 years ago, they didn't have safety goggles. You're banging on a stone, it's going to hit you in the eye. You know, you're going to shoot your eye out. If you, so you may know that movie. You know, he's going to be, it's just going to be bad news. I mean, you go, okay, fair enough. Well, the beginning of that chapter, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1, makes a very interesting comment. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And you want to go, well, how do you know flies give perfume a bad smell? You don't know that unless you've had a lot of flies in your perfume, right? And then you go, oh, I don't want that. And obviously he's had that experience. And his observation is, as ugly as that is, so if you do life and you just do stupid things and you get carried away, then you'll be in trouble. It's not going to be fun at all. Next verse, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. He was talking about U.S. politics right there. <laughs> no, he was talking about where you're sitting today. You guys are on the left, you guys are on the right. Oh, no, it's the other way around, right? No, he's really saying his understanding is if you do this, you're going to be wise. If you do that, he's, but he's, it's back and forth, back and forth. How do I figure all this out? And then I want you to read with me. Ecclesiastes, why don't you get your Bible out, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Grab one in the pew rack because you, you're not going to believe what you're about to read. All right? This is, you're going to, and Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It's right in the middle of the Bible there. And then you can see the page numbers if you grab one in the pew rack in front of you. Chapter 7, verse 26. I, you need to buckle up your seatbelt, right? Right now, tighten it down on that pew. Pull your hat down tight because you're not going to believe what he's about to, about to say. I find, verse 26, I find more bitter than death. Well, what could be more bitter than death? I find more bitter than death a woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. Why would he say that? Except that he's experienced some lady who's really done a number on him, Right? The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Somehow or other, he's had an experience in the life of love where it hasn't gone so well. He says, look, this is what I've discovered. After I've added one thing to another, and I've looked at the scheme of things, I was looking, searching, couldn't figure it out, I was not finding. But then, halfway through verse 28, I found one upright man among a thousand but not one upright woman among them all. You ladies are going, this is in the Bible? This is in the Bible? What's this about? Well, again, I want to remind you, you have to read all of Ecclesiastes to understand it. You can't just take one verse, because if you take one verse and you go, oh, you get a thousand ladies together, there's not one good one among them. That's a little problematic, isn't it? You've got to read the whole thing to figure it out. So here, here's where he's coming from. He had all this experience when it came to women. Different culture, different time. He's the king of Israel. He had, catch this, 700 wives. Crazy man, crazy man. 700 wives, 300 women besides that, 
known as concubines, in his harem. A thousand women in all. It would appear that his love life was a little problematic. Do you think? Do you think? He'd learned that apparently that all these women in an attempt, I suppose, to outdo each other and to gain his attention, it didn't go so well. As a matter of fact, it didn't go so well with men either. He really couldn't trust only but one out of a thousand because he doesn't know who's working with him, for him versus against him. Who can he trust? And basically he's saying, look, I've had work that involved men. I've had loving that involved women. And as a rich ruler, I didn't know who I can trust, but I did figure this out. Amongst the men, you might find one guy in a thousand, but when it comes to the matters of the heart and the ladies, you're dead in the water before you even start. That's his take. Now, ladies, I'm not agreeing. I'm saying if you have a thousand wives, you've got a problem. That was what he experienced. I'm pointing out Solomon's observation, and he's saying, I really can't figure out how this has all worked. And it goes back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13. When he lays out what, how he's going to approach this whole topic of what does it mean to be wise and how should you live, he said, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. So the book of Ecclesiastes is trying to figure out everything that's done under heaven. And remember, where we're trying to go, we're trying to get to this idea that there should be some balance in life. And we've been learning throughout the weeks that he's been saying that you've got to focus both on earth and on heaven. But when it comes to things just under earth, I don't know how it's all going to play out, he says. And so in chapter 7 again, verse 15, is where we can find this passage of scripture, this passage that kind of says, you've got to have some balance in life. That's where we've been headed, right? Verse 15, chapter 7, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen these kinds of things. I've seen both the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. I've, I've seen it where a guy's been working really, really well and you would expect him to get rewarded and he gets some sort of crazy bad thing happen to him. Bad things happening to good people. Or he says, I've also seen good things happening to bad people. And so what am I going to do about that? Don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Because if you do both, if you try to be, live on the extreme, you're going to destroy yourself. Don't be over-wicked, verse 17. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? But verse 18, here it is. It is good to grasp one and not let go of the other. And he's been saying, I'm holding, trying to figure out, do daily life, the stuff under the sun, the stuff under heaven, and whoever fears God will avoid what? All extremes. What's he talking about? He's talking about balance. He says, I've seen a lot of discrepancies in life where things seem really unfair, and I think that would be all of our experience. Yet in the middle of the unfairness of life, under heaven, under the sun, he says, Here's wisdom from heaven. Avoid extremes. Hold your life in balance. Hold your life in tension. Do life daily with the stuff you have to do with your family, with your job, with all of that. It's all legitimate in the sense you do that, but if that's all you do, it's meaningless. Do it within the context of heaven. Now, to that end, 
living in the tension of both these worlds, I would need to say that I have a pastoral concern that I would like to bring in this regard to the congregation called First Christian Church. I want you to listen very carefully this morning on this. And those who are guests this morning, thank you ahead of time for giving me a moment or two to speak to this congregation that I love and I serve. I would say it this way. Our congregation has grown in stature in years past. Um, We've grown a lot. And I'm not just talking about numbers. I mean, I'm talking about just the way in which we do things, our position in the community, and all that sort of stuff. And it's all good. I get that. And I believe the changes we've experienced have been initiated and were brought to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm great with all of that. But in the midst of all of that, I have a caution for us. In the midst of doing all this stuff, Stuff. let's not just focus on there because if we just focus on he we'll become haughty and we'll skip and miss the things of heaven I'll explain it this way perhaps you've been to a carnival where they set up a trailer and they've got the slanted board like this and there are these little animal heads that pop out and the goal is you take this rubber mallet and you're supposed to bop them on the head. You ever didn't? Uh, are they moles? I don't know what, monkeys, whatever they are that pop up. And the object is, is as soon as one comes up, you hit that and if you can bang the next one, you can bang enough within your allotted time. You've paid $7 to play the game and if you get enough, they'll give you a little stuffed animal that they paid a quarter for and you go, I've, it's a fair, even exchange. I don't know that that's the case, but that's a different matter. But my observation is sometimes church life can be a little bit like that. Here's something over here. Let's bop that for a while. And then there's something else that pops over here. Let's bop that for a while. And fair enough, I get it. And I would like to be certain that I bop something in the head this morning before it pops up. What I'm about to say is not in response to stuff that's going on in the life of our church but something I'm concerned about. We are a cross-section of the community. Our congregation is a cross-section of the Christian community as well. And we have within our congregation a variety of different types of people. We have people of influence and affluence here, certainly. We also have people here who would come from another extreme, who come from, if we could say, we come from very common, simple backgrounds. As I look at the culture outside the church, particularly with us about to go into another political um, election cycle, it appears to me that the media right now and whoever is controlling all that info out there is setting us up as a nation for some really difficult class struggles moving forward. This group against that group. And we as a congregation cannot, must not, should not reflect the typical class struggles of what the culture is bringing to us. We are to be different. We are to be a congregation that pursues congregational life in tension and in balance. We do life together while focusing on heaven. Because if we just focus on life together, we're going to be in trouble because the world sets up rich people against poor people and supposedly they are at odds with each other. And it would be tragic if well-off people and moderate income people of this church were at odds with each other. That's not biblical. 
for anyone with affluence or influence to lord it over somebody who doesn't have that, that lording it over is arrogance and elitism, and we need to bop that sin on the head before it even appears. Let's not do that. On the other hand, for those who don't have so much to then think badly about toward those who do, saying they're trying to control everything, that's another mole head that needs to be popped as well. See, it'd be easy for us all to become self-righteous and for all of us to say, well, if you look at my life, you know, I spend a lot of time in prayer and I do a lot of Bible study and I fill this role in the church and that role in the church and so forth. Man, I must be a pleasure for God to have around. <laughs> that sort of self-righteousness, friends, it needs to be popped and say, that's not the way this church works. This is not a problem at present. Hear me. But I would say as the Spirit of God would try to speak through me today, hear this very clearly. First Christian Church has a role in this community. It's a growing role that God is bringing to us, and it requires that people of all backgrounds be here together, and there are no exclusions at the door. None. It requires those of differing educational achievements or differing economic abilities or varying degrees of spiritual maturity. We all must live and work together. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. We are the faith community called First Christian Church. Let's live there while we focus on this understanding of heaven, that Jesus Christ came and he died once and for all, Paul the Apostle says, for all. He died once, not just for a few people, but he died for all. And we, keep our, we live life here while focusing on the greater things of heaven. So with that in mind, we live our life in this tension, in this balance between all these groups working it out and doing together, which as I said all along 10 minutes ago was, well, this is the second way to be wise, to live in tension. Well, given all of that, what's the first way to be wise? Well, you've heard this each and every week. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at verse 12, we read this. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. The reason he knows that is because he did that. Solomon's done that. And he says, in light of all that I've studied and all that I've heard and the way in which I've lived and I've worked with men and women, I've worked with all kinds of people, now all that I've listed in this book has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all. Basically, there is no end to the, what could be said, if you will, about the frustrations of life, about what can be learned about life under heaven. But here's the summation. Number one way to be wise, fear God. Verse 13, fear God, and that is the summation of it all. Did you see that again? Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for that's the duty of all. Doing this helps us because we fear God and we live life. And in fearing God, here's my understanding, we focus on the things of heaven. We don't try to live by ourselves. 
Because it's quite clear to me, and probably to you, there are moments in life for all of us when, when things are really cool and life is really grand. But there are also moments in life when it's not so grand, and frankly, you could describe life as like, well, it's really sour right now, and it's like sucking on lemons soaked in vinegar. That's what life could be like at moments. And that's, it's not okay, but it's okay. Why? Because we're doing this and we're saying, what are we going to do above all else? Fear God. And I would ask you this question in light of that today. How would God be prompting you to live life differently in light of... Nobody, nobody sets out in life, well, I want to be stupid in life. Nobody does that, right? We would all say, I want to do life well. I want life to do me well. I want to, I, I, I want to, I want to be wise. Don't focus just here. Focus also on the things of heaven. Fear God. How would God be prompting you this morning to say, I'm going to do this different, differently because my focus is going to be on God? Which would also ask me again, ask, have me ask you again, in wisdom now, doing life Focusing on the fear of God and on honoring him, how would you in wisdom then advise me to handle my error of this past week when, he, when I publicly used an inaccurate figure that had been given to me and then the paper put it out there for everyone to read? In fairness to them, should I just let it go and hope that it fades from the scene and, well, nobody was paying attention to that prayer in the first place? Well, that's not a very good, that's not a good response, is it? Well, nobody was paying, to the prayer, paying attention to the prayer, then why did I bother praying it? You know, why did I bother going to that event? Or should I just hope that nobody reads the paper anymore? No, that's not good either because look again at how Solomon puts it. It's like, it's like it was there all along for the last few weeks in preparation for me this week, okay? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all. For weeks I've been focusing on that passage, that little verse right there. But you know, there's another kicker for me personally that comes right after it. Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including, whether, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. There was no evil intent on my part this week. It was a mistake I made. Somebody had given me a figure. I repeated it. I walked off the stage and went, that doesn't feel quite right. Do I pray that nobody noticed and it just goes away and it becomes hidden? Maybe it becomes hidden, but who knows? God knows and I know. So what did I do? I wrote a letter to the, to the editor asking it to be published, and I apologized for the error. Maybe nobody else saw the error or noticed it, but I know about it. God knows about it. And I'm humiliated. I'm writing, I've read, it's already gone. I'm not humiliated, but you know, I'm kind of like... <laughs> which is pretty humiliating, but nonetheless. Because, truth be told, while maybe nobody read the article or remembers the prayer, they will remember the letter. Right? But a little humble pie is always better for the sake of accuracy here and there. 
right? So living life here, fearing God at the same time. Let's pray together. Lord, in these moments as we've looked at Scripture, we've learned some things. We've learned that Solomon had a crazy life. He did a lot of things that maybe none of us have ever done. But then maybe, Lord, we've done some things he didn't do. He didn't have to worry about putting stuff out on the internet. And how silly we can do that at times. He, um, he reminded us that we should live our lives fully and yet at the same time realize in the long run it all is only has power and meaning if it's done in the context of doing it with you in Christ. So this week, God, we would choose to fear you. We'd choose to have you be honored in our lives. Prompt us in the places where that should occur, God. Maybe it's in a relationship. Perhaps, Lord, it's in a setting at work. Maybe it's something to do with our kids or our parents, our finances, our work here at the church, God. We want to do it all in a way that would show for you to see, first of all, most importantly, that we do honor you with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.